Hello and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into European VC. Broadcasting from Denmark, my name is Andreas Monkholm. And from Portugal, I'm David Silva. Together, we are your hosts for today's episode. If you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please do reach out to us at LinkedIn or at theeuropeanvc.com. If you are about to raise an international round, do feel free to reach out to us for an introduction to relevant VCs. Today, we are joined by Shomit Ghosh, general partner of Onset Ventures, a leading early-stage venture firm operating out of Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. With more than 130 startups and seven funds under its belt, Onset Ventures is a highly respected firm in the Valley. Shomit is six months shy from his 20-year anniversary at Onset, and has operational startup experience from three successful IPOs. Shomit has a highly successful career thanks to his tremendous insights into data-driven business models. Shomit is known for his breakthrough thinking and for boldly stating that all human products are commodities, with data being the only exception. In today's episode, we'll be diving into the rabbit hole and exploring why Shomit believes that data ethics is the next big differentiator for startups. Shomit will share with us some learnings drawn from 20 years of working across the Atlantic as a VC. Hi, Shomit. Welcome to the European VC, and thank you for joining us today. It's completely my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. That's nice of you to say so. Shomit, uh, I'd like to first start out by getting to know you a little better. I, I know that you're a frequent guest in Europe uh, and specifically in Denmark, but I'm also very interested in our audience getting to know more about you and also understanding why you told me before our episode here that you aren't very keen on sitting in a plane for nine hours these days. Yeah, so um, let's start with that one, Andreas. The reason has nothing to do with the pandemic, but because I, I like riding my bike a lot and wouldn't you know it, about six weeks ago, I crashed my bike through a complete inattention and stupidity on my part. And among other things, I broke a rib. So, so it's been a little bit painful just moving around, although this, it's gotten much better since then. And yeah, I'm also uh, frequently in Denmark. I do quite a bit of business there and, and academic work and have also been married to a girl from, from Fuhn since uh, way back in the 1980s. So um, frequently to be seen in Denmark. In fact, if you see someone on the streets of Denmark that looks like me, it's me. <laughs> Awesome. I'm sorry to hear about the accent, Shomit, and I hope uh, you're getting better. In preparation for this episode, you mentioned that you are super excited about the data semantics class you're teaching at UC Berkeley and at the Technical University of Denmark this year. To be honest, I was a bit surprised because <laughs> it isn't very common for a VC to highlight something like that. Can you explain why this is particularly exciting for you? Yeah, I think a lot of being a VC, by the way, is helping prepare the next generation of entrepreneurs. Uh, this is why I find this class particularly exciting. And David, you mentioned earlier that my view is that everything in the world is data-centric. And there are a couple of companies, uh, Amazon and Google you know, are among the the number, there are a few others, who are really, really good at practicing with their data. And they do it in, in a nuanced and different way from what other companies might do. So in these classes that I've been teaching, I've been teaching it at Berkeley for the past couple of years, and I'm teaching it, portions of it at this fall at DTU in Denmark. It's about how do you view data and how do you use data in the same manner that companies like Amazon, Google, and Uber do. And by doing so, I'm hoping that we can equip this next generation of entrepreneurs uh, to compete on equal footing with some of these giants and go on to be very successful entrepreneurs. So that's what I find exciting about it. And it's been a lot of fun. 
I really like your view on being a VC and it all being about helping entrepreneurs succeed and basically drive their, their projects uh, forward. Thank you for that. I'd love to also explore your thinking around data as a source of competitive advantage. Could you just give us a quick intro to what made you come to this realization? And I have no idea how long it was. And also since then, how you've seen it play out in reality. Right. So, um, and, and David, you touched on this a little bit also in the introductory remarks. If you think about human products, uh, everything that human beings create is a commodity, meaning the more you have, the less it's worth. So if we were drowning in diamonds, diamonds would be worth, worthless. You know, the more we have, the less it's worth, diamonds would become a commodity. So everything on the planet is a commodity except for one human product, and that's data. And data is an anti-commodity. The more you have, the more it's worth. And in fact, if you look at companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook, the one thing that ties them together is that they have this insatiable appetite for more and more data. Uh, these companies already have the highest dimensionality data on the planet, and yet they spend time acquiring more, creating more every day. And it's because this is the ultimate source of their competitor advantage. And data being an anti-commodity, it allows you to also reach conclusions and, and gain insights because of the variety of the data that you have. So it's been driven, you know, investing philosophy here has been driven through this view. And I reached this probably about 15 years ago, before terms such like big data were common, when I used to think of machine learning as being statistical learning theory. But back then, my view was that if you looked at traditional elements of, of the technology industry, which is hardware, software, and bandwidth, all three of them had been uh, commoditized. So if those had been commoditized, hardware, software, bandwidth, what was going to happen? We're going to end up with uh, an oversupply of data. So my conclusion back then was that the only value was in extracting value from this data. And that's what's uh, driven my thinking since then. I'm going to go a bit off script and I apologize <laughs> for doing it. And I'm also going to take the risk of taking this to a more conceptual level. But I'm actually curious to have your, your take on this because data information and knowledge are really, really different things. Right. And so when, when you talk about, you know, a data centric model or, or investment approach that really focuses on values data. How do you think about these three different levels of complexity? So data, information and knowledge. Yeah, um, that's a nice way of looking at David. Uh, thanks for breaking it down like that. Data in itself is also a commodity, but it needs to be leveraged to drive insight. And here, I think there's even a distinction between, in my mind, between data as a retrospective resource and data as a prospective resource. And what I mean by that is that it's certainly interesting to look at data to understand what has happened. Okay, that's fine. But if everything in the world is commoditized and a commoditized environment, you can win by two methods. One is to lower your prices, or the other is you can predict what's going to happen. And so I think data is most valuable when it's used as a predictive and a prospective resource, that you use it to predict what's going to happen. And I think you're able to predict these really well, uh, the greater the variety of the data that you might have. And so it's interesting uh, to be able to query and find out what has happened. It's much more interesting to be able to, to correlate and figure out what's going to happen. And this is where I think that the true value lies. And when I see opportunities, that's my method of evaluating them, is that is this merely uh, giving a clearer picture on what's, what has happened, or is it giving a clearer picture of what's going to happen? 
Xiaomin, I would love to uh, to continue this line a bit because while David made it more conceptual, I'd love to go the other way and ask, so what unique business models would you say that you've seen that do exactly this? And maybe even if you would highlight one of the investments that you've made in this field. Yeah, so there are lots of examples of companies that do this well, companies that we're familiar with. If you look at Google and Amazon and Uber, they're all essentially in the business of predicting what's going to happen. Uber is forward pricing what Andreas himself is willing to pay for a ride based on the fact that it's going to be raining tomorrow evening. So we know he'll pay more for his ride than otherwise. And there also happens to be a soccer game that's getting out two blocks away from where he's going to be uh, awaiting his pickup. So they're using this to do predictive pricing of a commodity product, which I think is a, a you know, pretty slick way of using data. Amazon, Google do the same things. You know, these companies, they also employ behavioral economics, not only to predict behavior, but also to drive behavior. And this behavioral economics is in itself driven by data. And this is the kind of complex way in which these companies, these these practitioners of big data, use data well. So these are some existing examples. So what might some future examples be? I'm a, a big fan on bringing human impact using technology. So using technology to help provision things that all of us as humans deserve to get in our lives. So things like education, healthcare, access to financial capital. So how can you drive, for example, healthcare using data? Well, the best kind of healthcare would be the kind that's predictive and preventive. So it's so good at predicting what might happen to me that it can help me prevent those things from happening. So I live a long and happy life. I pass away in my sleep at age 115 without ever having incurred a single dollar of medical expense because my data signals were able to predict that I might have been at risk of depression, type 2 diabetes, whatever, and allowed me to take the steps to avoid those. Those data signals, as so much academic research has shown around the world, those data signals are essentially spilling out of my mobile phone right now. If you think about the the mobile phone, this is probably the most ubiquitous and most powerful invention ever. There are so many of them. I think the last I saw, there are something like 6 billion mobile phones on the planet and something like 3 billion smartphones on the planet. What a wonderful platform to leverage both for the data signals that come out and also for the data signals that will come in from me so that we can provision these things, healthcare, education, financial access, et cetera, using predictive data. And Jomin, I have to uh, continue this line a bit because I remember one day you and I sat in a, uh, in a hipster bar in Copenhagen and you talked about noise and you're thinking around the fact that there's no way for us to protect our privacy anymore uh, via filters. It needs to be noise that makes the predictive analytics not work because we're sending out too much noise. Would you elaborate a bit on that thought and uh, let us know what you've been thinking since you said that a few years back? Yeah, boy, a great memory, Andreas. Yeah, I'm going to have to be careful what I say in your presence evermore. Exactly. And One of my philosophical views is that ethics is the foundation of differentiating business models evermore. Because we as human beings, uh, we want ethical behavior from all those around us, whether those are our friends or family members or the businesses that we interact with. So I think ethics is a very important aspect of differentiating business models going forward. And to your question specifically, Andreas, you know, we have these data signals which are spewing forth from basically anything with the power source, not just your mobile phone, but IoT, your car, you name it. Anything with the power sources is spitting out a data signal today. 
And the danger is that these data signals can become very intrusive, intrusive to the point that they compromise our privacy. And getting back to my my last assertion, none of us wants to have unethical behavior from any of the parties that uh, that we transact with in our lives. So how can we help defeat or at least counteract some of the effects of the intrusiveness of data signals? Heretofore, if you think about cybersecurity, cybersecurity has been defined as protecting a system. So you have a firewall that you know, protects your PC or your server. We need to be thinking about cybersecurity in the terms of also how can we obscure, how can we obfuscate uh, Andreas's data signal? So intimate details about his his life are not broadcast for all to see. And so, you know, really re-envisioning cybersecurity as being an exercise in cyber safety. So once again, how can we inject enough noise into these data signals so that privacy is maintained of Andreas's data signal in the same way that a firewall will protect the you know, the data that's stored about Andreas on a server. So, um, you know, my, my thinking on this uh, continues to be in the same vein that you've described, Andreas. And I think it calls for a new set of innovation and startups as well in, in the area of cybersecurity. My next thought, if I wouldn't have to continue in, uh, in our script here as well, would of course be, uh, so have you seen any startups doing this? Yeah, and actually, uh, if I could just interrupt for a second, Andreas, uh, probably before that, uh, hopefully, and this is just getting off my usual writer's block, but hopefully I'll, uh, I'll write an article that will further expound on my views in this area and the future of cybersecurity. So maybe keep your eyes peeled for that as well. We certainly will, of course, and we'll be happy to share it with uh, everyone who's listening here. Shomit, you mentioned that in the future, we'll be seeing data ethics as one of the most important competitive advantages. But I have to say that looking at what's going on right now in the world and the firms that we are seeing performing very well on the stock market aren't exactly poster boys for data ethics. What would be your perspective on this and where do you see this uh, trajectory going? Right. So it's true that today there may not be any poster boys that we can point to or poster girls in the area of data ethics, but everything evolves. And what we're seeing today, I think, is a realization from we, the technology using public, that we're giving up quite a bit of our privacy through our use of technology. And privacy is super important. If you think about, you know, any oppressive state, for example, the first thing you'll lose in that oppressive state is your right to privacy. That's the very first thing that you'll lose. So I think people are starting to understand that this multiplicity of data signals that are so freely available through technology today is compromising our privacy. Um, so things evolve always in the course of human events. So the companies that may have primacy today may not be the ones who have primacy tomorrow. And I think that human beings, no matter where you are in the world, we want our privacy. It doesn't matter where you live, you want privacy and you want ethical behavior. So given the choice between company A, which has no privacy, who may have compromised integrity, and company B, which maybe the services aren't quite as good or maybe a tiny bit more expensive, but can guarantee ethical behavior, which one would you rather work with? So similarly, if I were to say, hey, Andreas, I'd like to introduce you to David. He's super smart, but he has no integrity. You'd say, why are you wasting my time? First of all, I said, Andres, I'd like to introduce you to David. Not the world's brightest guy, but honest as the day is long. Of course, you'd say, yeah, happy to meet David, right? This is it. Well, none of us want to work with people who don't have that sort of integrity. And I think the same will come into play for startups and technology startups in particular. And I think, by the way, this is, gives a particular advantage to European startups today. 
because they can start from day one with all of these philosophies enshrined in how the company is built. From day one, you're an ethics-first company. I think that no doubt they'll get even stronger with the strong regulations in place in Europe that will help you know, drive home the need for this uh, ethical behavior. But I think there's also a very strong appreciation in, I think among younger folks in general, everywhere, that these are important factors to consider. Shomit, I would like now to shift our focus a bit, and I'd like to shift it towards a topic that's actually really close to our heart here at the European VC, and that is collaboration and collaboration between European and American VCs. Not many VCs uh, have been in the business as long as you have, and especially considering that the European VC industry is actually younger than its American counterpart. So maybe let's start with a general question. Do you have any good advice to our listeners around collaborating across the Atlantic? Yeah, I'm a big fan of collaboration, period. And that's because of the uh, realization, I think, that markets are always global. And in fact, the most successful U.S. startups are completely global and were global from day one. None of them restricted themselves merely to regional dominance. So if you're going to uh, set out to be very successful, um, by definition, you need to be global. For you to be global, you need to understand how things work in the rest of the world. Uh, none of us is so smart, at least I know I'm not that I know exactly how things work in every part of the, the world. So the best way for me to acquire that knowledge is to work with people who are knowledgeable and, and can complement what I know. So I think the collaboration is implied in building a successful enterprise. If we now laser focus uh, into Europe, so to speak. <laughs> I'm asking this uh, mostly because I want to have your take based on your experience in collaborating with the European ecosystem. What do you see is most important to promote a stronger European VC ecosystem? Because something we've been realized, even through some of our interviews with some of our guests, is that European VCs and even LPs tend to be very country-focused rather than having, let's say, a pan-European approach. And so do you have any thoughts on how this situation could be mitigated? Yeah, I think it needs to go beyond pan-European and really be yeah, pan-global, basically. For any company to succeed, it has to be global. It has to be global on day one. Here in California, I think California is the world's fifth largest economy. And of course, the U.S. is the world's largest economy. If any startup came in and said merely, I'm going to dominate the world's fifth largest economy, California, or dominate the U.S., we would show them the door because they're not thinking broadly enough. They're not thinking strategically. We want them from day one to think we're going to be a global presence. We're going to have a dominating presence in our markets worldwide. So I think the that same philosophy needs to be applied in every region. So it doesn't matter if you're a European company or an Asian company or African company, wherever you may be from, you need to be thinking about how can my, my product be impactful worldwide. And by having that from the very beginning, you lay the groundwork for actually being successful worldwide. My advice and counsel to investors and entrepreneurs everywhere is to plan on that global domination from day one. This is very much to the startup development and uh, so so what's, what goes on in the targets, you might call them, for VCs. But what would be your perspective on the VCs' ways of doing business? And I might even put you on the spot here because you're right on Sand Hill Road and are, are you globally oriented? Are you looking as much on Indian, Chinese, European startups as uh, startups made in your backyard? 
I think this is something that needs to happen more and more. Uh, we are facing both challenges and opportunities that are global in nature. And I don't think that any region by itself will be able to optimally address any of those challenges or opportunities. So going forward, I think that this needs to be more and more in onus for investors. There may even be a factor here of COVID-19, whereas in the past, investment decisions were made based on face-to-face meetings with between entrepreneurs and investors. And that gave a bias towards entrepreneurs who were geographically co-located with the investors. But under COVID-19, with the enforced social distancing, it's as easy for me to meet with a uh, startup from the other part of the world as it might be from one who's just down the street. So in this way, COVID-19 actually might bring the benefit of helping to democratize the process of access to capital. I think there is only benefit in the uh, democratization, you know, the asset of knowledge and just the, the understanding that you know, genius is global, people are smart everywhere. How can we make capital equally accessible to people no matter where they may be so that we can find those entrepreneurs who have the best solutions and the most passion? I have to follow up on this and it's just to hammer home a uh, point that I, I hope you will end up making, which is in Europe, we're seeing a lot of VC funds requiring companies to relocate if they invest. What would be your perspective on this? Is this a good practice or is it something that is developed that uh, we should try and get rid of? Yeah, I, I think that the reason behind that was the foundation of it was good, but it may have reflected the reality of days gone by. The reason why investments were required to be proximal to the investors was set so that the investors could give help, guidance, and counsel to those investments. And that was most easily done, of course, by meeting people face-to-face rather than connecting with them over the telephone. So for any startup, the most important input into it is actually the guidance. It's not the money. Money is a commodity. You can get money anywhere. And in fact, if money were the only thing you needed to have a successful startup, you'd be better off getting that money from a bank, right? So the most important thing any startup can get is not the money, but the guidance. How do you make the right decisions? And in the past, these right decisions were meted out most effectively by face-to-face meetings, hence this requirement to be geographically co-located. But maybe what we're finding out through the dynamic now under COVID-19 is that we can have really good relationships and have opportunities to provide that really good guidance uh, completely over virtual means, maybe just as we're doing now here over the, uh, over the podcast. So if it's possible to give guidance and counsel, give that most important ingredient to startup success by virtual mechanisms like video conferencing, then great. It doesn't matter where that startup may reside. We can optimize and make decisions just based on the best teams and the best ideas, not on the quote-unquote best location. Shoma, I can't resist the temptation of asking you another question. And I know I'm going off script again. Um, Something I'm personally um, really curious about and interested about is venture investing models. And so venture capital is arguably one of them that has deserved most recognition and actually had most impact, but it's not the only one. And even within the VC model, so to speak, we've seen some new kind of creative nuances to it to try to further align, for example, interests between founders and investors. And so my question is actually, have you seen anything that's made you particularly excited? Is there anything out there that you think is actually interesting? Or do you think that the VC model is solid and here to stay? Yeah, the the VC model has been really effective and and no doubt will continue to be effective because it's a way of providing uh, risk-tolerant capital. And this is what startups need is risk-tolerant capital, where if things succeed, great. If things don't succeed, you know, the company goes out of business and the, and the entrepreneur may have to find a new job, 
but they're not left to having to you know repay a loan or something like that. So it's this risk tolerance that's that's made the model successful and so foundational in driving the modern world in which we live. That said, my view is once again that capital is great, but capital is a commodity and you know how I feel about commodities. And it's about anti-commodities where where success lies. And anti-commodity here would be good guidance. You know, it's being able to provide the counsel to make the right decisions as a startup. Because in a startup, it's a situation where even the smallest miscalculation will lead to failure. So you need to optimize constantly for making the right decisions given the all the circumstances around you. So, you know, guidance is what wins. So maybe if we look beyond the definition of venture capital as being monetary capital and think of it as being the investment of intellectual capital, maybe that's where the future lies of being able to optimize for not just the commodity of money, but being able to optimize for the anti-commodity of good guidance and thinking about this in terms of, you know, venture intellectual capital, not just venture you know, monetary capital. It's a very interesting, Shomit. Um, Shomit, we're coming up on the end of our uh, talk here, so I would love to uh, shift us into our segment of the quickfire round. It's, of course, a round where we ask you quick answer questions, and uh, you have just a short 30 or 60 seconds for each one. Of course, you know us. We might dive into something, and uh, you should be uh, very welcome to do so as well. Uh, are you ready for it? I'm all set. Good. First question, what would you personally like to change about VC in general? And if you would be willing to say so, what would you like to change in Europe? Wow, that's a really great question. I think that uh, we talked about the need for uh, venture capital to be global for all of us to be able to think of in, in these global contexts. And so maybe what that comes down to is the need to be inclusive. We're facing these major challenges to to the planet. We're also seeing major opportunities here for businesses. The only way for us to be able to identify what those are and also identify the best solutions and the best teams is to bring in that inclusivity. So, you know, this is the thing I'd like to see is that this cease to be a narrowly focused practice and have a, a broader aperture so that we can bring in some of this uh, global genius that that exists all around us. Second question, Shoman. What would be your advice to VCs looking to establish a closer connection to the American VC industry? Yeah, that, that's a great question, too. I think this applies equally to uh, American VCs wishing to have close connections with VCs elsewhere in the globe. It requires more than just the transaction. We need to get to know each other well before there's ever an investment in play. So we need to get to know each other so we know who may be congenial with us when it comes to personality, who may have congruent views to us when it comes to investment and technology futures, things like that. And so that we also have uh, relationships of trust in place. These things happen only through an investment of time. And so we need to have those deeper relationships. Otherwise, we if we only view each other through the the lens of doing a transaction, maybe we never it never culminates in being a, a productive enough relationship. So I, I guess my advice would be get to know each other and get to know each other in substance and do so well before an investment is in play. And now, Shomit, of course, our final question and the one that I have been most exciting to hear your answer to, which is, of course, what can we expect in the future from Shomit and also uh, Aunt Adventures? Because there's so much to be done. Uh, and I think that there's so much uh, intellectual wherewithal that can do it uh, everywhere in the world. So, you know, where I'd like to see myself going forward here is continuing to to work with entrepreneurs and that next generation of entrepreneurs to help solve and address some of these these challenges before us. 
Shomer, I'm really happy with this episode. I really enjoyed talking with you. I'd like to thank you for your time. I hope that uh, our podcast plays somewhat of a role in helping VCs across the globe to get to know each other. We're obviously focusing in Europe, but our main role is to foster the relationships also with other regions. And so thank you very much for your time here on the European VC. It was entirely my privilege for being here. Thank you so much and wishing you all success. I know it's going to do, do good things. This was our interview with Showman Ghost, general partner of Font Adventures. If you want to see more from Showman, follow him on LinkedIn. That's all for today and thanks for listening. The European VC is your go-to place for insights into the European VC industry. Visit theeuropeanvc.com to hear more from us and feel free to suggest topics or guests for future episodes. We are always there for you.